we're going to do a group activity, okay, about what has to happen inside the head, okay? Here's what we found out is we started really going after instruction, particularly with students from high poverty households, is that content comprehension is not a part of that reality, okay? Survival is. Survival has a different purpose, different patterns, different structures, different processes. But when you get into abstract content, then how do you take and build that structure in so that information can be accepted and used and made sense of? And what I'm going to ask you to do is you're going to jigsaw this book. Now, let me say a little bit about it. It's a simplified overview of what has to occur in your head from a cognitive angle. It is not um, a learning angle. It's not about what, as you make sense of your reality, what has to happen inside your head to deal with that reality. It's possible to have a brain and not have a mind. A brain is the physical characteristics of it. A mind is how you develop it to negotiate reality. And so we're going to look at what has to happen inside your head in order to learn. So it's a very basic kind of overview. I had somebody say to me, well, actually, cognition is more uh, uh, detailed than this. And I said, yes, it is. But the purpose of this is just to give conceptual frames about what has to happen in the head. Educators are taught a lot about teaching, but not much about learning. And basically what happens, the only people in education who get a learning, any info about learning, is if you go to special ed, early childhood or counseling. And so the deal is what has to happen inside your head to learn. And so we're going to look at those kinds of things uh, as we work through this. So here's what you're going to do. Divide this book into sections by the number of people in your group. Like, for example... It goes from 255 to 285, basically, so that's 30 pages. So if you have six people in your group, that's five pages a person. Some chapters are longer than other chapters, so it doesn't exactly work to break it out by chapters, but you can. And now you need to discuss it. And so you have 15 minutes for each of you to teach your section back to your group. So it's got two parts. Part one, where you divide it into sections and you each read your part. Part two, you teach your part back to the group. And so then after we do that, then we'll start in on what that means as you start looking at students and student work. I'm going to ask a couple groups if they would report out on two things. One, anything uh, that stuck out for them in their learning or anything that... Um, what the group discussed in terms of uh, what they might do with students or their own learning. So it's kind of an open-ended question. We find with middle school kids and high school kids, if you make 20, this is a suggestion. I don't know if you are allowed to do this or not. Okay. And, and I want to apologize to uh, your principal in that I, I failed to understand you could not modify that PLC format also, my apologies, okay? But one of the things we have, I recommend this recommendation for your consideration. We found that if you make 20% of the grade based on how the processes the kid has to use, 
Like one of the ways to do that in math is you get three points per answer, one point for the uh, process, one point for the correct answer, one point for labeling it correctly. This becomes a huge issue when they get into uh, uh, physics and trig because um, they'll give them the answer uh, and calculus. They'll often give them the answers. The kid has to figure out the process. So it becomes a, an incredible tool for that as well. Um, who's another group that would want to report out on this? Yes, and that was one of my comments earlier about because Common Core was developed by mostly college professors, and there was virtually, I think is, if I remember correctly, there was only one K-12 educator on that committee. One of the things is some of the basic scaffolding that has to be done to get to the level of content were not uh, addressed in that as well. Let me, let me say one of the reasons, let me just relate a story if I might real quickly about one of the reasons why if you don't do something with automaticity, well, coaches understand you have to have automaticity if you want to win, okay? But what happens is I had a mother come to me and uh, when I was a principal, she said, I don't want my, uh, her son was either a fifth or sixth grader. She said, I don't want him to, you're, you're doing absolutely awful instructional practices in your building. And I'm going to go talk to the superintendent about you. You're, you're awful. So I said, so help me understand what practices you're talking about. She, did, she said, well, you're doing that drill and kill in math. We were doing mad minutes. Um, does everybody know what mad minutes are? Um, mad minutes are when you give them 100 problems in uh, division and multiplica uh, multiplication and addition, subtraction. And they have to... Um, they got five minutes to do these problems. It's it, You're building automaticity. Well, I said, ma'am, we're working on your son's automaticity. And she said, what is that? And I said, well, you have heard of uh, Benjamin Bloom, haven't you? And she said, yes, she was an educator. She said, yes, we use his tax, taxonomy. I said, well, he had a little known study on expertise and he coined the term automaticity. Now, um, usually the way I explain automaticity is this. It's how you drove home, don't remember driving there, and you weren't drunk, okay? Um, you, you're in your own garage, and you're not quite sure how you got there. Well, that's automaticity, okay? And what we know is this. Benjamin Bloom said this. The more complex a task you're involved in, the more parts of that task have to be at the level of automaticity to do it. So I said to the mother, here's what's happening to your son on the test. Your son knows what three times or four times four is, but he doesn't have that at the level of automaticity, so he counts on his fingers. By the time he's got that answer, he has forgotten the, the problem. By the time he rereads the question, he's forgotten his answer. He does that a couple times, and then what happens is he marks anything and he gets cognitive fatigue. And so one of the things is, we have started talking a lot about the role of automaticity uh, in learning. So thank you for your reporting out on this now. And I want to show you now a couple more pieces as we start looking at uh, what has to happen inside the head, what you have to do with your curriculum, how you to get that to match and student work. Um, and so you have, I have a couple of your uh, schema, your pacing guides, your conceptual frames, your schema. Now, for example, if you look at your math grade seven performance level descriptors rubric, what that rubric is, is it's telling your students how they move that list. 
if I might make a recommendation to you, I saw a rubric similar to this for this in your writing. One of the things you can significantly jump your achievement levels, if you will attach this rubric, if you will ask your students when they complete an assignment or once or, you know, once every two weeks or whatever, when they complete assignment, they take a highlighter and they highlight where they are on this rubric as in terms of their own development. Because one of the things you're doing with them is you're making them aware of the criteria that are helping them move along the continuum. Um, and it becomes embedded in their mind because they know their criteria and you can get more growth that way. I want to talk about the issue of time and your pacing guides. Part of the issue is when you're looking at John Hattie's stuff on effect size, which I'm going to show you, when you, which we've talked about, when you look at your timeline, okay, and what you have to get done in a certain amount of time, you think about what's in the kid's head and curriculum calibration. And time is the biggest problem. The way most syllabus are written is that God himself, if he had 140 IQ kids, could teach it in could not teach it in nine months. So what happens is most educators do some picking and choosing in order to get through the essential parts of the curriculum. One of the things is part of what happens when you start analyzing it is student work. When was talking about student work, if you will go to page 99 in this book, what you have is research from a study in California. And they looked at 18,000 pieces of student work. Now, this is elementary calibration, but I want to show it to you because it's a huge, it becomes an even bigger problem in middle school. They wanted to know why these schools were low performing. And what they looked at, these low-performing schools, they found out that they all, okay, all of them were using the curriculum, all of them were using the standards. So they finally looked at the work the kids were doing. And I hinted at this. It's called curriculum calibration. And basically what you will see is this. In kindergarten, 100% of the kids were on grade level. By fifth grade, 100% of the assignments, I'm sorry, were on grade level. By fifth grade, only 2% of the assignments were on grade level. Same way in reading, language arts. The issue becomes then, how do you calibrate student work and decide if it's on grade level? And that's one thing I want to look at with you on some of these issues before we take a break. After we take a break, I'm going to look at the book, Research-Based Strategies, and talk about some of the things that give the highest payoff. But when we look at this, one of the things is big on is complex text in science, in social studies, and in language arts. And I'm sure you've heard that terminology, okay? There are several measures, but one is the Lexile measure. And they want it to be between 925 and 1185 in middle school, okay, six through eight. And one of the ways that you can know, this is just a quick and dirty tool that I've used for years, but one of the ways you can know very quickly 
if a passage is over where that individual kid is, okay, is you just read, they read the page. And if there's at least five words on a page, that first page, they don't know, then one of the things, you know, it's going to be difficult for them to deal with that passage. And it's not just the structure of the text, it's language, it's the vocabulary load, it's the prior knowledge demands, it's the levels of meaning and purpose. So as you start looking at this, the question becomes, how do I get this kid up here to this level of curriculum calibration? So I wanna show you a couple work assignments from your campus and we're just going to analyze these in terms of curriculum calibration. And I need to say this, that part of what's going on here is you have, I'm not criticizing any assignments. Part of what has happened here is that you have been asked to quickly transfer a lot of materials to online and use them online. I get that. Okay. But I want to talk about some of the how you begin to think about assignments. So this was the assignment and thank you so much for ever shared it. What it starts out with, uh, what do you know about is kind of looking at prior knowledge. Then you're moving them to this whole concept of boundaries, okay? Oceanic plate diverging boundaries, okay, is the first. Then you've got the continental plate. Then you've got the converging boundary. Okay, you're moving to oceanic and continental plate converging boundaries. Okay, if you look at the text, one of the things you find that this is complex text because of the vocabulary load. Okay, um, and you look at the knowledge bases a student would have to have to know this or understand this. Okay, there's visuals that help it. And then you end up with this chart. Now, the chart is incredibly beneficial for the kid, okay? And one of the issues, one of the things that I would consider if I were doing this is I would look at having this first and last. So I'd introduce this first because it's an organizer for the information. I'd follow it up at the end again because it's a patterning framing. What I did when I looked at this assignment, I went online and looked at your test questions, okay? Now, one of the things that we are gonna do in the future, uh, your principal and, and I are gonna get together and talk about what we do for next steps. But how many of you have taken have actually taken one of the tests that your kids have to take. You've taken it online with the computer. One of the things, this becomes really critical because 50 up to 50% of a test score can be related to acquaintance with format, okay? And I went online and worked with some of your testing questions. And I don't think I'm a tech idiot, but it's not easy. Okay, and many of your students in poverty households, actually, there's not a computer in the household. Um, let me ask you this. Did you provide devices for kids at home? Yes. Okay. So if you one one to one for everybody, wonderful. Okay. So they're getting more exposure to that. 
So one of the things is on this, what as you look at this assignment, the key questions are number one, is this calibrated to the level of difficulty of the test? Okay. Um, and so in your science, your science teachers online, is this assignment calibrated to the level of difficulty of the test? All right, so this is calibrated to the level of difficulty of the test. And may I ask where you got this assignment? Do you know where you're getting your, where are you getting a lot of online materials? Are they being provided by the textbook companies? When I went back and looked, the, the vocabulary and the complex text is there. Then I looked at the test um, that's online for eighth grade. and It's a different format. So one of the things is that when we start talking about testing and how you get kids ready for the online format, we have found that there's a huge discrepancy in getting them ready for that. And so I wanted to give you all some ideas, and you may be using several of them, about how you, uh, how often, if I might ask, wants to know if you use the Pearson EasyBridge site as well for science like they do for math. Anybody know? No, it says that's only math, okay. Um, well, you have to use the language of the test, but I get that. But what I'm really interested in is the format of the test. So one of the things is that you wanna look at the format as well as the language, all right? Um, so I looked at this one, does anyone, this is an example of student work and the question is, is it calibrated? Uh, to the level of the test. What we found when we started calibrating work is we found that calibrated is often calibrated to the, the textbook, but not to the test, okay? Um, one of the things that we did um, for eighth, for those of you in IB, Okay, one of the things I recommend that y'all do is take a practice level ACT or SAT because the beginning of their fresh their sophomore year is when they take that test. And so it's very interesting to back up and look at what they have to do. Now, I wanted to show you um, as another piece of student work that came out of eighth grade ELA. And there's a lot of... Um, formal, uh, high-level, complex text in the syllabus that I saw from the state. One of my questions was this. You all are, and this is a question for you to discuss. I know that you're all almost 70, 75% African-American. I didn't see very much African-American literature in the syllabus. Did I miss it? I didn't see the whole thing. So you augment with that? Okay, 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 okay. Well, let's just talk about this uh, assignment now as we start looking at it. Um, what it was, was to look at this poem, look at the video, okay? And then begin to look at the questions that went with it. Now, one of the things I wanted to say about test construction, testing companies have a formula about how they construct answers. They have a different formula for uh, 
uh, text than they do for uh, math. So I wanted to show you those, and they are in your book, uh, Research-Based Strategies. I wanted to talk a little bit about this. One of the ways you can significantly up your test scores is to have students develop their own uh, curriculum, their own questions over the curriculum. And one of the things we look at when they develop their own question, if you look at question making, uh, it is really key. How, let me ask you this question. How many of you have had a student say to you, I don't understand. And when you say, which part don't you understand? What do they say? All of it. None of it. Everything. Right. What you know when you get in a response like that is that the student cannot ask a question syntactically. In financial poverty, you have about half the vocabulary as you do in uh, educated households. And one of the things you do in casual register is you make a statement and non-verbally you make it a question. You say you don't have any more. And what you're doing on that is you are non-verbally making a question. If you can't say, don't you have any more or ask it in formal register of your native language, the research is it's hard to get past the third grade reading level and you can't go in your head and know what you know. So one of the things we did a lot of work with, and if you do work with this, you can also raise your test scores. But we did a lot of work with making students develop their own, own questions. And there's a whole tool in here about how you do it. But I wanna show you also what the testing companies do. And we taught kids how to analyze them like the testing companies do. Um, and one of the reasons that, um, one of the online, one of the tutoring schools that gets high remarks on, on uh, improving test scores, they do it simply by making students tell them why the wrong answer is wrong. When you start teaching them how to ask questions, we look at two things. So let's, I want to show you what we do in language arts, and then I'll show you what in science and history, and then what we do in math. But what you will see here is this, is that when test companies make questions, they make two basically that are throwaways and two that are really close together. And what they do then for the two that are close together is they'll have one detail in them that will throw them off because the question either doesn't go with, the answer doesn't go with the question or there's one detail in the answer that makes it wrong like always, never, not. And so what we do then with them, it's page 147. What we do for them then is we then, page 147 in this book, what we do is we then teach them what they need to do. We ask them then, when you start looking at these, Slice out two that you know aren't going to be right, and then begin to look at what the question is answering. So let's let me give you a couple examples, and I'll show you then next time. I'll show you how you begin to analyze it. But who or what shall stand at our sea wash sunset gates? So what is that question asking? We make the kid go back and circle. What does it want to know? Who or what stands will stand? So if you look at the choices here, all right, 
you can pretty much knock out two of these choices and then it goes down to two more. And then what we begin to do. So they'll have just, they call the wrong answer choices distractors. And basically what you will find is that distractors then can be anywhere from the question is asking in detail and they'll have a general concept or it will be a detail unrelated to the question or it will be, it'll be a main idea question and they won't give you the, it, it will be a detail. So what they do is they do a lot of details uh, in terms of, or they'll put a word not in or never in. When I was working with ninth graders, we did, and I worked with in middle school and we got them to do this twice a week in language arts and in history, social studies. They made them get together with students. You can do this online. They didn't do it online. They did it in person, but you put two kids together and you give them these question stems are in page 149, 150, 151 of your book, 152, 153. Because if you look across the United States, all the question stems are pretty much the same. And then what you do is a student makes a question or two over the material and you make them do it multiple choice so that they, I, when I first did this, I didn't make them answer the questions and they were ridiculous. You know, they would make up stuff like what happens to the main character if her eyeball fell out. Okay. Well, that wasn't even in the story. So the bottom line is what you do is you then put that together. Uh, you, they do multiple choice and then we make them available to take their names off. They trade with another student and we start talking about their answer choices and how they work.